0: Hey, everybody. I recently appeared on the uh, on uh, Matt Wall's podcast, um, the I Hate Matt Wall podcast. If you already truly hate Matt Wall, uh, you might want to skip it. But I will just say that I had COVID. I had just woken up from a nap. I was completely unprepared. And he was so hospitable, so sweet, and so uh, thoroughly... <laughs> embarrassingly prepared like he had had my book he had a dozen post-it notes he had done like deep research and got a bunch of stuff out of me I was sort of surprised by it It was a lot of fun it's always enjoyable for me not to be in charge and just to answer questions so if you think you might enjoy I I was surprised by how just fun and easy a conversation it was we talked about submissions to magazines we talked about my own personal criteria for when I submit and when I don't. Uh, we talked about uh, publishing. Was, there's, there's like a, a tiny bit of material you, you might have heard if you've listened to Sleeve Ricketts, but mostly not. Uh, then we also talked about Dan Coas' long, delicious essay on Rod McKeown. Uh That is, I'll, I'll put links in the show notes. He, he broke it into two parts, but that is on the Matt Wall podcast. And now uh, let's get to today's painstakingly outlined, and immaculately structured episode. In graduate school, Brian and I ran a reading series together for a little while. And at some point, he went to the school or some, I, I guess it was some institutional source, but he he managed to get us a little bit of funding. And so we used to walk around promoting the, the reading, you know, on Monday nights right beforehand. We'd, we'd walk around town. Handing out flyers. And uh, so we were getting ready to do that. And he was explaining to me how this money worked and that we needed to basically, we had to uh, file for reimbursement. And so he was explaining that, that, you know, anytime we bought anything for that we were going to use for the reading, whether that be refreshments or paper for flyers or even tape or, you know, how, staples, anything that we used for. The reading series or promotion of the reading series itself. All we had to do was get a receipt, and then we could file it with the 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 school, and they would reimburse us up to you know whatever amount. So I was not very good at keeping up with this kind of stuff, and he was he was drilling it into my head. You know, this is the, always ask for a receipt. This is the important thing. Just don't forget. And we we I remember we walked into I think it was just like a convenience store because we, we we run out of. Uh, Taped to to put up some flyers, and I went up to the, the counter and I handed the guy some the tape, and and he he rang me up, and I paid him with a card, and he said, "Hey, you want a receipt?" And I said, "No, don't worry about it." And then Brian said, "Yes, no, yes, do worry." But didn't you listen to anything I just said? The whole point was you have to get a receipt. And then we went later. <laughs> we hung up some hung up some flyers and went to to get some <laughs> refreshments for the for the show, and then. I, I said, I, I understand what you're saying. I got it all, I, I've digested it, fully understood it. Don't worry, I'm, I'm converted now. I'm gonna be responsible. I know how to handle the, the, the responsibility of running this series with institutional funding. And the guy at the counter uh, asked me if I wanted a receipt and I said, no, don't worry about it because just, I'm just not very good at this. And so that's what's in my head right now as I do probably another dumb financial thing there is a phenomenon in any kind of episodic endeavor right like I, I i would think about this like watching tv series as a kid there would often be for like sitcoms in particular there'd be like a a 100th episode special or you know often they would hit whatever the mark had to be for syndication but you know they would, they would hit these these um, milestones 100 episodes, 200 episodes and they would make a big to-do out of it often they would do the everybody's least favorite thing which was run a clip show of of things that had already we'd already seen from other episodes and they'd kind of string it together with some flimsy framing device. The thing about these milestones is that they they of course they don't matter at all. If you are just somebody who watches the show. Because all you care about is whatever that, you know, if you if it's a show you actually listen to and actually enjoy, then all you care about is is getting that week's installment. You just care about getting the hour or whatever of entertainment that you came there for, and that's that's what you want. You don't really want a fanfare, and it doesn't really matter to you what the number of the episode is, if you even pay attention to that. All of which is to say. The only people it actually matters to are the people putting out the program. Now, this is not an important episode number. I think this is the 81st episode, which I guess is nine squared. But otherwise, that's not significant. What is significant, though, is that this week, Alice put out the 200th episode of Poetry Says. She's been doing the show for... Six years? I think six years. Uh, She's put out 200 episodes, which is just an insane quantity, Uh, particularly considering that she does both, like like half of those are solo episodes and then half are, are interviews. And she does most of her interviews in person. This is something she's been doing Totally on her own. It's it's actually a good episode. Instead of making some big to-do out of it, she just went to the park and rambled for uh, half an hour. And she does she actually does kind of a lovely job. She talks a little bit about making the show, but then she mostly hems and haws about she's, how she's not going to offer any advice. And then she offers a bunch of advice. And most of it's pretty good. But along the way, she says that she has been asked a number of times why she doesn't try to make money with her podcast. Or, or at least you know, get some reimbursement really is what she, you know, what, what the question would be. And she said she sort of has a principle that she doesn't want to do that. She thinks that money messes this up. I obviously completely disagree. I think she's a total fool. Uh, I've, I've continually tried to give her money and she has refused. But I found uh, I found a chink in her armor. So she she suggested to her listeners that if they would like to contribute to the show she asks only if it's something that is you know they can offer relatively pain free she asks that instead they make a donation to the elizabeth morgan house which is i'm going to read it off the website because it's fucking news to me it's run by the aboriginal women's service inc it says, we provide refuge, accommodation, and specialist family violence services to Aboriginal women and their children. Our support also extends to parents of Aboriginal children, as well as partners and ex-partners of Aboriginal children. They're in Fairfield, Victoria, which I think is a suburb of Melbourne. Uh, when you go on the website, you I'll, I'll put a link to their donation page uh, in the show notes. You, uh, you have to click on. Put in a foreign address because otherwise it's going to try to get get an Australian address out of you and that won't work very well. Um, it is then going to ask for an international number. The usual formula of adding a one to uh, your U.S. number won't work for some fucking reason. So uh, instead, you have to put in an Australian number. I just used Alice's number, so I hope she doesn't get junk calls from Elizabeth's house. Uh, Elizabeth Morgan, the Elizabeth Morgan House. But if you need, um, if you need an, an Australian number, uh, you feel free to use one three zero zero six nine six three nine seven, which is the number to the Melbourne branch of the Herald Sun, uh, which is Rupert Murdoch's newspaper in Melbourne. Because I know Rupert Murdoch cares about providing specialist family violence services to Aboriginal women. So. Uh, please do if you if you feel so inclined, um, if you have ever enjoyed Alice's contributions to this show or, uh, of course, her work on Poetry Says. This is her big two hundredth episode. Go to the Elizabeth Morgan House link in the show notes and donate a little money. I can't figure out. I was thinking of the, the the guy with the hat and the shorts in Jurassic Park, the Australian guy, and that that you know iconic moment when he's. He's stalking his beloved, uh, specially bred velociraptors, and and uh, they they of course they outsmart him, and one of them one one of them flanks him, and and he, he has this brief moment where he kind of turns and and he says "clever gal. And, and then he just gets torn to pieces. Uh, and I was thinking about that because it occurred to me that I can't tell whether Alice outsmarted herself into creating an opportunity for me to give. Her money indirectly or if she just straightforwardly outsmarted me and tricked me into giving her money or giving money to Elizabeth Morgan House because, of course, uh, that's where it's going. So um, in either case, Alice is indeed a clever girl. And uh, don't worry, I am using the bechtel approved Steven Spielberg feminist loophole for calling a grown woman a girl, which is perfectly all right as long as you are also comparing her to a Velociraptor. So congratulations to Alice and let's get on with the fucking show. This one doesn't have Alice on it. It would be really appropriate if this one did have Alice on it, uh, but it does, it's totally fucking unrelated, so. Elizabeth Morgan House. Uh, I will not pretend I I, uh, vetted this place. Alice vetted it. If it is actually a Ponzi scheme, please blame Alice. Clever girl. I'm Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you're listening to Slee Rickets. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, especially to anybody who has taken a moment sometime this week and just recommended the show to a friend. It, that's, that's truly how almost everybody ends up hearing about this. I Oh, fuck, I've got to read this fucking email. I got the best email uh, because somebody did a really, really good job of this. Let me find it on here. Yes. Okay, so... So I got this note from Aaron Irwin, who I think is a musician in New York City, um, and he said, I am a somewhat new listener to your podcast, but I've gone back and listened to many of your older episodes and really love the podcast and the work you do. I found it through Alice's podcast, which I also really love. He wrote me later to say he uh, he realized how many times he used the word love in this email, and it uh, it was slightly mortified. But don't be mortified, Aaron. We believe in love on this podcast. FYI, he goes on, I met Alice through an online poetry class with Josh Megan, which I freaking loved. Um, which is, that is supposed to be good. I think that I think that just finished up. I think that just wrapped up. Um, but uh, it is supposed to be good. So do take another class with Josh Megan. You may meet someone like Alice or someone like Aaron. Anyways, getting back to Aaron's note, he says, I continue to go back and re-listen to the difficulty episodes as they really resonate for me. In fact, I happen to get to see... Carl Phillips, give a reading last night in Brooklyn, where I live, and I mentioned the Slee Ricketts podcast to him and the discussion of his interview with Jeffrey Hill. He did not know Slee Ricketts, which I was disappointed <laughs> Yes, 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 Aaron. Yes, that is the correct response. However, he did say it was a great name for a podcast and had a little follow-up anecdote regarding his interview. So this is in the difficulty episode. Uh... We talked about and read a little bit from a Paris Review interview that Carl Phillips had done with Jeffrey Hill, and um, we just talked about sort of the uh, he gave a, 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 I think a a charming portrait of Jeffrey Hill as a as as a man at home and not just uh, a, a famous and intimidating poet, but he has a, he has this anecdote. Uh, so Carl mentioned. That he was quite nervous in giving the interview due to the topic, but and the topic was um, at least for the part of the episode, the, the part of the interview we read or, or could read, it was about the difficulty of Hill's poetry. So Carl mentioned that he was quite nervous in giving the interview due to the topic, but during the second night of discussion, Jeffrey got really drunk and walked into his own closet thinking it was the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> after this incident the nerves and pressure subsided it was it was like the it was like the 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 first 30 seconds of uh of the first episode of succession but then not the next 15 seconds later where he where he actually pees on the carpet it was just just that just the the initial moment i love that image of jeffrey hill being so drunk that he just briefly (laughs) opens the wrong door and turns into his own closet uh I thought it was a funny little story that you might like to know, and, and an excuse for me to write and tell you how much I really enjoy your podcast. Thanks for the hard work. Th- thank you, Aaron. This is this is excellent. I you you you've earned my uh, my respect, my thanks. If you are, this is the new standard, by the way. If you're going to mention the podcast to a friend, please be sure to mention it to someone who has won. The uh, the Lambda Literary Award, the Samuel French Morse, and the Kingsley Tuft Poetry Award. That is nothing less, nothing less than that uh, will be will be uh, acceptable. And uh, Carl Phillips, we gotta we gotta we now we gotta get you on. So thank you so much, Aaron. Uh, I'm gonna uh, decide, Put your email into the secret show thing. I'll give you a, a free month because you 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 deserve it for for spreading the good fucking news. Um, I wanted to quickly see if there were any other crucial emails. I did get some more, particularly about some recent Secret Show stuff. I had a couple, I think, kind of juicy Secret Show episodes um, that were uh, people seemed to respond to. They were solo, and I've been. That's kind of that's where a lot of the solo stuff has been going lately. Uh, and I will have some more gossipy stuff coming up there soon. If you like slee rickets and you would like to hear more, please do go to sleerickets.substack.com and just enter your email address. That's all you have to do. And I will send you a I'll send you an email for a free week's subscription to the secret show. If you like that, sign up for it. It's really fucking cheap. It's gonna get more expensive in the new year, but go ahead and sign up for it now and enjoy. There's like 20 episodes on there and more coming all the time. All right. So when Hamilton first came out, well, when it came out as a, uh, a, a a filmed stage production, July 4th, 2020, was it? 2021. It was, it may have been like right in that first awful part of the pandemic, but it was It's at some point in the last couple of years, uh, it came out it's a big national event uh, and we watched it on TV for the first time. I think we, we uh, Joanna had listened to some of the music and had seen little clips. But we watched the whole thing on the TV and Joanna developed uh, an enormous crush on Daveed Diggs. Understandable, but like sort of because it's so understandable, you know, kind of boring, I have to say. Not that Daveed Diggs is boring. DeV Diggs is a cool, hot genius. But, you know, it's just boring because... It's not that hard to have a crush on a cool, hot genius. It doesn't really say much about you. Uh, I, more recently, however, she's had two other TV crushes that I think, like, uh, reveal something, if not about her, then maybe about like like the nature of attraction or the nature of like m- what makes a guy attract. Because the two guys she's had big crushes on most recently are Jeremy Allen White from. Uh, shameless, and the most recently, The Bear, and then uh, Jay Duplass from The Mindy Project and uh, Transparent, and then most recently, Industry, where he plays a big uh, hedge fund guy. But in both cases, they're sort of like, neither of them is an especially beautiful man. They're both sort of odd-looking guys, but they have a quality that I, I could I could recognize it and I recognize its attractiveness, but it just took me a little bit to pin down exactly what it was. And I think what it really amounts to is the combination of enormous self-confidence with zero pride, not zero dignity, but zero pride, like zero, zero self-seriousness and zero preciousness about oneself. And that in itself is is maybe pleasant, but the combination of that with, with unshakable and palpable confidence is really appealing. And I bring this all up because I recently talked to Carmine Starnino. It took a long time to get him on. He's a poet, essayist, editor. He works at the Walrus, I believe. His most recent book—I could be wrong, but I believe his most recent book is called *Lazy Bastardism*, and it's essays and reviews on contemporary poetry. He's an excellent critic. Um, he wrote an essay some months—I mean, God, it was—it was a number of months ago—in *The New Criterion* that they had some title for I forget but then it was run it was run separately again later by The Walrus which is a Canadian magazine and they gave it the title Robots Are Writing Poetry and many people can't tell the difference. So this came out in in The Walrus in May and uh, I found it fascinating and I've been really just sort of playing playing kind of email tag with him. He's uh, an insanely busy man. So I've just been trying to get him on the show. Finally got him on. Uh, and he is so uh, mellow and charming and Italian that it just made me think of Jeremy Allen White and J2+. And it, and it, I felt immense gratitude that he is not on TV. <laughs> so this conversation, I left in some things I usually take out both Carmine and I were in our respective homes solo with our kids during the conversation. His kids were considerably better behaved than mine. mine who often interrupt while I'm having these conversations interrupted even way more than normal and both because Carmine specifically asked me to leave some of this stuff in and because, our subject is the peculiarity of speech when it is produced by real living human beings versus when it's produced by machines. Because that's our topic, I, I left in some, some funny, some cute, some just honestly kind of annoying interludes with my daughters. I, I For the most part cut that stuff out both for your sake and theirs they don't you don't hear a whole lot from them but uh i think it it may i don't know i won't do it again i mean i'm not gonna i'm not gonna i'm not interested in in uh in doing a show about (laughs) about my fucking daughters whom i adore uh but I, I thought in this case it felt oddly appropriate. So just a warning, there will be some some funny. There's still, I compressed a lot of it and I cut out a lot of it, but but there are there are a few curious interludes. Uh, I hope you will enjoy this conversation. Please read the article, robots are, writing people and many people, robots are Writing Poetry and Many People Can't Tell the Difference. Please go buy Carmine's books. I will include links to all of that and to The Walrus. And if he ever produces a television show, don't let your wife watch it.
1: It began with like me following stories about yeah this form of artificial intelligence called natural language generation. And so these are sophisticated algorithms, language generation models as they're dubbed, that mimic how we write. And so I noticed that every time there was a breakthrough um, in which the machine was said to draw on vastly more data uh, to write even more believably, a poem was often offered up as a boast, yeah. a proof of concept, as it were. Yeah. This machine is so good, it can write poetry. And invariably, the poem was shitty. (laughs) I mean, it it, it was incoherent, it was confused, it was jumbled. And yet, people were dazzled that the algorithm could generate such garbage. And I thought, this is interesting. So I began to look at the phenomenon of computer-generated verse, which, of which there are countless examples. And some of those examples were better than others, uh, by which I mean the language was superficially more compelling than um, other examples, um, but by and large, I found the poetry completely unimpressive. And, um, and impressive because I, it was just language debased into these randomized words. Yeah. And yet, again, so many were impressed. And I found this interesting. So here's this revolutionary paradigm-shifting technology being used to produce, we're told, plays, novels, film scripts. But when it came to poetry, all it could produce was pastiche endless streams of it um and so i i thought it would be interesting to write about why that might be the case as i saw it. um and and then i began to realize as i was sort of as i started to read about it and 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 actually talk to sort of ai um engineers about it one of which i play poker with um uh i, I found out later i mean I not that i you, I you knew found I out that you poker. play poker? Or, yeah. Well, no, 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 he, I realized that part of what he did was was work on the, these kinds of algorithms. And, and so I realized that as much as AI can teach us about the extent to which human creativity can be replicated, we know it can write songs, we know it can sculpt, we know it can paint, that poetry may be useful in teaching us about the limits of these mm-hmm. algorithms. And so no matter how powerful the al- algorithm, to my mind, I came to the conclusion that it would never be able to independently arrange words in ways that express love, rapture, hate, grief, and it would never do so with any kind of artistry. And and it's a conviction, I think, based on my sense of how these engines work, these language generating algorithms work. So basically, you f- you feed it tens of thousands of poems and the algorithm reverse engineers the style and content of those poems into what it understands to be a working model of a poem. And, and the poem is simply a, statist- a statistical expression of all the data it is trained on. Yeah. So when you ask it to write a poem, it assembles the parts willy-nilly in a version of what it has learned a poem looks like. And, so, and this is what makes it astonishing, because yeah. it actually knows that the word dog is close to paw. It knows okay. that sky is likely to follow blue and draws on those connections to make, to, make its, to, to write its lines. But it has no idea what a dog is. It has no idea what a paw is. It has no, it has no idea what a sky is. It's, yeah. it's never seen the color blue. Or if it has, it doesn't know what it is. It doesn't know it's writing a poem. It doesn't even know what writing is. Um, it's just, it is an equation that you've asked it to sort of solve. And, and then it, it, it spits out this output. And I'm sympathetic. Like, it, I, you know, we all have different understandings and appreciations for various things. And I understand that people may admire or even love the poems that this kind of artificial intelligence writes. And and there's no reason they shouldn't admire it or love it or celebrate it. I mean, you know, and I brought in the example of Christian Bach, who's actually a friend of mine. And, you know, he, he for him, you know, these kinds of algorithmically authored poems are, you know, um, are the next step in our evolution. Yeah. Both as as artists and as humans, but I think we should be clear that w- what people are appreciating isn't poetry, but a kind of algorithmic parlor trick, and um, and I think what and 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 what ins- what really triggered the essay was that so many people were gulled into believing that we, they were, what they were seeing was some kind of 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 consciousness or sentience. Yeah. and 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 that's what ultimately I felt that, that that's what ultimately sort of. Pushed me to see to see if I could in, in, in put all of this into you know into words. Yeah, and then the New Criterion published it, and and the uh, the Walrus where I work as an editor re- reprinted it.
0: Yeah, and and the, I can't remember when it because I read it in the New Criterion, and I know that this uh, this happens all the time with with online magazines where the, the titles of pieces change, but the the title at least in the Walrus uh, online is. Robots are writing poetry and many people can't tell the difference. I know, you know writer, writers don't always pick their titles, but I thought that was, in a way, a, a telling title because yeah,
1: yeah, it yeah.
0: suggests initially that the headline is Robots are Writing Poetry, but the real headline is People Can't Tell the Difference.
1: <laughs> that's right. That's right. right? Like, it's that's not right. really
0: about what robots are
1: capable of, it's about what distinctions we're making. Right. You know, I mean, the new criterion picked a, a very different. Um, headline, and you're right, writers don't don't yeah. have a say in this. And the new criterion saw the piece as a kind of expression of personhood and and it was. Poetry and personhood was, I think, the title. because of how we do things at the walrus we 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 went for the jugular right away. Um, sure. and and i I can understand why the I mean I had no even though I work at I mean even though I work at the walrus, I had no uh, I didn't intervene in that sure. uh, headline. that was done by the uh, by the web by the web team. Um, but I think that headline did sort of, did reflect something that I was trying to get at in the essay. Because the, this idea of writers being sort of like outwitted into sort of loving this stuff as an expression of some sort of like, you know, um, uh, computer artistry. You know, some sort of like ge- genuine artistry. The term for it is is the Eliza effect and From, I mean,
0: eliza do and then there was a, a computer program called eliza specifically do you want to say a word about what that
1: well i mean this day yeah it dates back to like the 1960s when this mit scientist what was his name uh, joseph uh, Weizenbaum, developed eliza which is the the first the world's was a f- i'm not sure if it was the world's first chat box but it was a first chat one of the earliest chat bots and it was this chat bot was pretty basic very primitive it was sort of hardwired um, to, to 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 spit out various sort of responses based on certain prompts, and and Weizenbaum was sort of really shocked by how easily users were taken in by the bot, how easily they yeah. believed that there was a person behind it. And I I, and I include an example in the essay of his secretary asking him to leave the room and close the door because she wanted to be alone with Eliza. Yeah. And so, what it was one of his colleagues who coined the term Eliza effect and. And she defined it as human complicity in a digital fantasy. Yeah, and I think I quoted that in the essay too. And the idea there is that we want to believe in the creative powers of AI so badly that we will look past any evidence to the contrary. Well, and this why is, and, this is so. Yeah. I don't know why this is so. I don't know.
0: Well, and this, and this is where there was one. There was one funny little moment that it was a slight ambiguity that I thought also sort of got toward the the core of the question. In um. You talk about the Turing test, which famously is uh, obviously was not called the Turing test by Alan Turing, who invented it. But he he called it the imitation game. But the the idea was that the uh, a significant test for machine intelligence would be indistinguishability from human intelligence in conversation. Right. And the way you put this, and and you put it a couple ways, but but there was, I think, something sort of telling about this slight ambiguity. You said. Uh, AI's holy grail of passing the Turing test—that is, building a machine that can persuade us it is
1: thinking—and
0: yeah. in a way, that's that may be. We might think of that as a higher bar, right? But because right. because the the, the 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 technically the original Turing test was two was two um, uh, uh, speakers conversing through text and a third judge who had to exactly. determine which of yeah. them was a machine. Yeah, and in this case. It, in some ways, we may be quicker to believe the machine that tries to convince us it's 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 intelligent when we know it's a machine Right. because in a way it testifies to maybe it testifies again to our own brilliance. Maybe it also says something about like the Eliza effect in a way reminded me of something I see and I imagine you've seen with small children, of course, like human children are brilliant and funny and and. Any parent has pulled little nuggets of wonderful things that his child has said, and and yeah. kind of you know identified these these little moments of discovery or mistakes. You know the title of this fucking podcast is an example of this. Yeah. Um, but part of what happens there is that we're we're imposing something on them, and I think like very often when we say like oh this child is wise beyond his years, like that's true sometimes, but often the child doesn't really know what it is that doesn't understand the implications of what he's saying but we understand the implications and so we will we will interpret into that we'll bring to that sort of curious utterance all of our knowledge and experience and find it very moving
1: yeah i mean you got into this um a few podcasts ago or last podcast where you talked about prodigies Mm -hmm. and um and so um and i think and i think the conversation with prodigies has to do with how do you assess what they do right um Uh, in many ways, how do you, in many ways, you're, what are you, if you're moved, what are you moved by? you moved by the music? Are you moved by um, how they're playing the music? I mean, many of these prodigies are far too young to even understand, you know, the grief or or confusion or the, you know, the pain that that has gone into making that music. And so there is this need to, I, I feel there is this need to read into what we're being given and seeing something, in it that isn't there, uh, and I and and when it comes to computer-generated first, this happens all the time, and it keeps happening even when we know better. And so I quoted what I thought was a pretty particularly interesting line from the book *You Are Not a Gadget* by by the tech critic um, uh, Jaron Lanier. Lanier, Lanier, Lanier. Lanier, I think. Linear, or at least Americans yeah. say Lanier. Yeah, Lanier. And he says that the, the Turing test. Cuts both ways because for for AI to ace the test, a human has to fail it. Yeah, which I thought was really interesting. And I and let me quickly say, you're right. The Turing test is now what it started off at is off as is no longer what it is now. It is now sort of a kind of placeholder for this fear or anxiety about what, but the threshold being crossed if we can't distinguish something a computer has created. As, as being sort of generated or human. But what I arrived at is the idea that what, that if most readers, readers can't distinguish AI generated poetry from human written works, that only means that our expectations for human written work are lower now. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. That, that algorithms have in fact exposed how shallow our thinking on poetry has become, how ready we are to be persuaded and to credit anything we are given as genius. I mean there are lots of reasons why that may be so and I think I go into some of it in the story and in, in the essay and and it's one that poets are are um, entirely responsible for you know the dadaist and the surrealist who used automatic writing to sever the art from like consciousness or the conscious yeah. mind the language po- poets who 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 countered the idea that words have any obligation to mean. i mean all of this i mean all of this or oh, the florists and the—I mean, yeah. all of this. The conceptual all of these, poets, you right? All stuff, of, yeah. yeah. All of these schools have widened the range of what is poetically a, 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 acceptable, and they have made computer verse credible as poetry. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's—I mean—I felt that that the Turing test is actually a bit. <laughs> maybe we need a reverse Turing test or something. Yeah, like. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, you know, it's funny when
0: talking talking to Alice about manifestos a while ago. I, in, in lieu of a manifesto, I kind of proposed that that another way to think about poetry or talk about poetry would be to take a moment each individual reader to identify which virtues it is that he prizes in poetry like what like what is and i realized only on rereading your article that, like part of where i got that idea was this article that you say um yeah so you 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 say what would it mean for ai to win at poetry because you know you're comparing this to uh the the kasparov deep blue um Mm. match that we for a while we thought a computer would never win at chess but, you know, if, if a computer were to win at poetry, what would that actually mean? And what kind of poem would finally convince us? You go on, the answer depends less on what we believe a computer can do and more when, what, what on what and more on what we believe suffices as poetry. And then this, this to me got at, and Cameron's going to be mad, but I think like there are a lot of, a lot of the, the, the kinds of poetry I find most difficult are, are the kinds of poetry that I think might be most easily approximated by AI. Right. You you uh you say the Turing test after all has shown that readers have a weakness for rhetoric, grand gestures, and feeling full murk, which is a great phrase, all of which algorithms easily mimic. And I might add to that, uh not necessarily compression, which is which is Jeffrey Hill's great virtue, right, but right. But like linguistic innovation,
1: yeah.
0: Um, and then you go on. If this is what we mean when we say AI will one day rival human poets, then it will surely win, and indeed may already have. But there's another kind of poetry AI will have to beat: poetry as an art of brilliant accuracies of reality redescribed in ways that bind sound to perception. And here, AI's deficiencies are brutally exposed. And so that's the difference between saying, "Boy, this po- boy, this this machine writes just like." William Blake or boy this machine came up with this phrase i never would have imagined right. versus oh god that rings true oh that's just what it's like when somebody breaks up with you that's just what it like what it's exactly. like when you realize you're getting old or you're, you lose your hair or your kid grows up you know like right. those moments of recognition that we have as you say the, the art of brilliant accuracy it's or you know even in physical descriptions um and you give a a, a few examples uh, you said it will need to be able to match Les Murray's depiction of beans as minute green dolphins at suck, or Peter Van Torn's realization that flying dragonflies have a great rattle of rice in their wings, or Elizabeth Bishop's noting of fish's coarse white flesh packed in like feathers, or how for Seamus Haney love was like a tinsmith's scoop sunk past its gleam in the meal bin. That all of these are, are, are not they're they are well put, and they're the, the none of the language is cliched, and so in that sense it's fresh and it's, it's, you know, it clears our sinuses the way that, that right. fresh writing does. But what's most striking about all these is the recognition. We say, oh, that is, that's just yeah. the right way to describe that.
1: Yeah, but you see, like, one of the, one of the things I had to cut from the piece because it, it ran too long, but I, I probably should have kept it in. But in all those examples of lines that I believe I, I can't write, I neglected <laughs> to say that those are all examples of metaphor. And yep. and 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 which Aristotle and, says
0: is the heart. That's that's the thing. This, this,
1: he he. The insight that produces metaphors, he thought, was a sign of genius. And, um, and metaphor involves a kind of calculation. I mean, from my from from my sort of amateur sort of uh, experience of 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 you know of um, you know of, of these algorithms in these in these sort of language models. I mean, and you know, I spent a year sort of reading all this stuff but it's a a kind of calculation impossible for algorithms because it because they need to see a point they would need to see a point of similarity between two unlike points or two unlike ideas or two unlike sort of uh, observations and that is an act of intuition it's an act of imagination it's not something it's it's not something you can algorithmically Control or you can't have any kind of designs on it. It's it is it is it is it's it's not it's not an expression. It's not a statistical expression. It's not a it's not a, a probabilistic sort of like idea. It's it's something seen, something else that's seen, and a connection made between the two. I mean, the irony is that the 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 phrase we use for what allows AI to do what it does, you know, neural nets, is not something AI could have ever come up with on its own. I mean, here is where Christian Bach is interesting because like for him the fact that people really like this stuff means that privileging our creativity as a human gift makes no sense because for him it's obvious computers can do exactly the same thing Mm. but it's not exactly the same thing right i mean because because the artistry of poetry if i can use that term isn't about remixing like vast swaths of ready-made data new no human mind could ever contain it's about Mm. It's about making legible aspects of our inner life by, by way of a pattern of words. And by pattern, I mean, you know, something acoustically intricate, a craftwork of balanced sounds. And it's, and it's not just that those sounds like exist as a counterpoint to the experience of, of pain or, 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 or grief, but that those patterns require a particular mix of insight, of verbal skill, intention. The binding force is in data. This is what makes, I think, poetry such an exceptional challenge Language models to replicate. I mean, what makes it wickedly hard to teach AI to write poetry isn't giving it the know how to choose a bit of diction and setting it into a position in a line. What makes it hard is that unless that ability is attached to like a psychic necessity, then the AI will remain, as one computer scientist said, a mouth without a brain.
0: I, I am a little bit skeptical. So, so you make this dis- distinction that, you know, poetry or, or uh, AI has produced like paintings that have sold for hundreds of thousands of dollars and uh, has produced, writes articles, like a friend of mine um, sent me an article about a an Insta poet, a Russian Insta poet. And as he said, it's, uh, it, it's hard to know for sure whether this is just in translation or but it mm. seems to be written by a, a program. Like it seems to be an article culled and pieced together and patched together by an AI program. But I am, I am skeptical that there is something special about poetry in contrast to the other arts. Because even with something like a screenplay, which is, you know, arguably also very formulaic. I mean, poetry can be extremely formulaic, but yeah. with screenplays like, you know, Hollywood has known the formula for a successful screenplay for decades and decades and decades now, like it's been codified. It's been, you know, you can, you can go read a a bunch of books and find and find out down to the page what should be happening. But even if every Hollywood movie has this same formula, only some of them really work. And it's not just a matter of which ones get funding or which ones have stars in them. It's that, that you can, you can fulfill all of the rules without Striking a nerve, without without ringing true, without getting at something that we feel moved by, and that like that's where so Stephen Marsh has wrote a piece around the same time you did about AI and literature, and he's actually written a few different pieces about this. But something he's he's come back to a couple times is GPT three, which I think I can't remember if you mentioned this one or not. I do, yeah, yeah. So GPT three is a, a, a one is the kind of the latest. You know, great leap in in uh, natural language processing or, or production, natural language generation. His observation is that it can it can extremely accurately reproduce the style of anybody you feed into it. Just just copy paste a chunk of text right, from any right, great right. book, and he will write exactly like Kafka, exactly like Steinbeck, exactly like Shakespeare. And he, not only that, but he will. Never commit an anachronism, will never draw a word from the wrong, you know, from that was outside of that decade's usage. It, you know, do things that no, no scholar can do, no expert can do. But I mean, a couple things stood out to me about, about this, his observations here. One was that, uh, that what makes Shakespeare Shakespeare great is not writing in the style of Shakespeare no. you know the, like part you know, right even, right even like writing poetry that is not necessarily in in any particular poet style, it does seem like what AI is doing is it is writing in the style of poetry right but rather than rather than changing you know like what makes Shakespeare great is that any one of it you know he wrote a lot of dross, he wrote a lot of okay stuff and then and then some of the things he wrote, I mean more than almost anybody else like some of the things he wrote, change our idea of what Shakespeare if you took away Hamlet he wouldn't be the same writer right. you, know, you you add and you each one of these great works changes our sense of what the whole the whole uh, oeuvre. and and I, I think that 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 combined with the other the other subtle I mean it's almost there's almost always sort of thrown away in a sleight of hand you mentioned it with a little more emphasis than I've seen in other articles you're talking about Ractor in the beginning, who's this, who was a, um, an early, in 1984, it, there was a book of poetry published by, uh, basically it was a computer coming up with, with, with lyric poetry, and you said, in fact, it was Ractor's developers who sorted through the copious amounts of text their instrument churned out, compiling the most striking results for publication, and uh, you know, uh, Marsh says this a, a couple of similar things. But, you know, there are moments where it'll say nonsense. There are moments where it'll do this. But you know, you can you can find within its its output these moments of greatness. And, and to me, like that's sort of the whole ball game. There, like right. like any any writer, the best writer writes a lot of garbage, writes stuff that doesn't make sense. The difference is not never making a mistake, never doing doing anything bad. The difference is knowing the difference. This even it, I was even a little bit uh irritated when i learned that kenny goldsmith as he puts it massages his automatic texts you know that's like right, it's a right. dumb project anyway <laughs> to like take a whole fucking newspaper and copy yeah. paste but like yeah. he doesn't even do that he he tweaks them for maximum effect and think like, well wait a minute that's but that's the whole game that's it yeah like like if you can't tell the difference between when you've written nonsense and when you've written something stunning then you don't know what you're doing i mean then it mm-hmm. is
1: automatic writing it's interesting you bring up marsh because i and I haven't read all of his articles on this. No, no, he's you know. he's definitely an AI adherent. Um, he's a he's a believer, and um, and I and I feel, I feel with, I mean, he's an extremely smart journalist. He's you know we we publish him at the Walrus. I'm a, I'm a big fan of his stuff. But I do feel when he writes about AI, I you know I, I feel that he has I I feel it's an example of the Eliza effect in in on display and. My sense of it, when he starts celebrating what these algorithms can do, can do is, is not my sense of it. What I remind myself is that, you know, algorithms live recursively, like how, how it acts depends on what has already occurred. So it anticipates only what it already knows. So, um, and so he's right. Like he, he's right when he argues that AI can chart like our vast expressive range. It can track it, it can replicate it, and it can give it back to us in ways that we may not at first recognize um, as computer-generated. But it would always lag behind, the, behind us because it needs us to get there first. And um, and as long as that's the case, AI will not win when it comes to poetry. It may not win when it comes to novels. I mean, I can't speak... when. It, when it comes to sort of painting and songs like it's not my field yeah yeah um and so i you know that uh, my piece didn't really get into that and i um but um but as 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 long as that recursive effect is exists then there's just no way there's just no way that that um yeah. that i mean in, in, you know it was interesting for you to bring up chess in the in uh, the last podcast again i'm not sure if i missed one but you know, it was Brian I talked about. That yeah, too. and so you were talking about these chess engines and how they've overtaken human players, and that is clear. I mean, yep. that is verifiable. But something similar has not happened with, in my mind, has not happened with writing. These language engines have not overtaken uh, their human counterparts, and part of that reason I feel has to has everything to do with, with the the, the sense that uh, what we're looking at when we look at GPT three is controlled experiments and triviality like it's just it's just language being given to us or remixed repackaged um you know maybe trawled from you know from you know whatever reaches of the internet gpt3 has read and yeah. and tracked but none of it is is you know as an is is an expression of of gpt3 can't judge the relative weight of diction it doesn't know how synonyms it doesn't understand that synonyms carry different connotations it, it, it doesn't understand that some words come with different historical baggage like it doesn't understand any of that but i mean but, but yeah. couldn't you
0: i mean you, it wouldn't be that hard though to like to wait say certain like either slurs or words that have as you said like a strong historical connotation or or to like link latinate words the way you link paw and dog like that that seems programmable at least theoretically right or you could even like in reading text, it could observe that there are certain words you only see in the company of other words. Right. I mean, that, that seems that part seems learnable, even if it's never going to understand.
1: And it is learnable. And, to and I, mean, I think to, to the extent that it is learnable, you, you are seeing um, AI writing sports stories and you are seeing AI writing, you know, uh, university papers um God, yeah. and which, you know and which she, like it, only ever only ever evinced intelligence yeah. to to some degree but none of that matters in poetry unless it's tied to something else you know oh that's a lot of laugh. that's
0: laughter or, okay it sounded happy i think
1: but but you know the ability to understand oh, that's really a nice laughter. the ability <laughs> <laughs> i just want to hear from this stuff this today um <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm totally thrown off. By, no, me, by, by the no, I'm actually worried yeah. if, if someone, if one of your kids has to come see you or come find you. Yeah, I guess my my, yeah. my point is that how how AI uses language when it comes to sports story is different than how AI uses language when it comes to writing poetry, and its sense of what those those relative weights of diction, those synonyms that words with historical baggage mean is different because the art is different. And and all of that is tied to, I don't know. I mean, it's it's yeah. it, it. You know, poetry f- fuses pictorial, emotional, metaphorical associations. All this accounts for the density of its effects, its ability to capture moods, depict states of mind. Yeah. It's an entirely different game than writing a sports story. Um, and so, so yeah, you're right. Like, I think you can you can you can certainly. GBT-3 can certainly get to the point where it understands what one word means versus another. But will it understand what that word means with a lived awareness of mortality? I mean, like, either Mm. you believe this matters or you don't, is what I'm saying, right? Like, either, Either you believe that, like, poetry is an art built out of the crooked timber of humanity, or you don't. Like, you know, and it's possible that, like, Bach, you believe that, like, you know, computers will figure out, like, a different than human way of making poems. One not prone to emotion. One... One where the poems aren't don't have any conflicted values or mixed feelings. Yeah. One written by machines for machines, and maybe that's a that's where we're heading next, you know? Or yeah. you don't like either. You believe, like Leonard Cohen, that poetry is a verdict, or you don't. Wait, I can't tell if that's happy or sad. Oh, that's sad. Hold on. That's I'm sad. Go. Okay, yeah. you gotta go. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah, uh... no worries. No, no, no. This, is how this stuff happens. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I thought you handled that yeah. well. You know, yeah. one dad's to another, that was well handled. <laughs> well, yeah, as as uh, uh, as best
0: as best one can. Um, I do I do think that with like it it may be because I, I was thinking like in that conversation with Brian when he he asked if there's anything I thought computers could do roughly as well as people now and my 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 instinctive response was conversation and I think what I, I think what I meant was something like chat or small talk yeah, yeah. because I do think I mean that's where certainly. In uh, like at a neighborhood barbecue, or like running into somebody going to check the mail, like that's where I feel right, myself at right. my most programmed. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, like you know, where I'm 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 running my own extremely simple algorithm to come up with what to say, and that's a, that's a place where I think that that you know an Eliza probably does about as well as I do when I go to like I went to the school concert and I see a few parents there and whatever I say to them is probably not much better than what Eliza would say. Um, and I think that I think that it may really be that you're right that that uh, it, that christian Bach and and Stephen Marsh and the programmers are surely right that there are certain virtues that computers can excel at in language.
1: right. There's certain right.
0: things that they can probably just do better than us, and it's no contest.
1: And they will. They'll keep yeah. doing better than us, right. but then but to believe that poetry is part of that is to believe that poetry is just another output. That you fiddle with the compositional rules to achieve that goal that's why ractor was like welcome news for like bach because it in his mind it rendered inspiration irrelevant now like either you believe that poetry's effects can be counterfeited by a process that has zero musical faculties or you or you don't like i don't and i don't like i i -hmm. i mean this isn't to say that real enough won't be good enough for a lot of readers but, right. it is, but it is to say that writing poetry believably is not writing poetry
0: yeah well I mean, I mean it it also tells you that like poetry has become a a bullshit art i mean poetry right. has become a play, like you pick up most and we
1: have we have helped make it that bullshit art
0: yeah 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 i mean you pick up most poetry magazines right. and even even good poetry magazines it's it's pretty unusual to find something that strikes any kind of nerve right I mean, and you know
1: and, and 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 one of one of mo most one of i mean one of his most cutting statements is is when he says that many of these, the computer generated verse is no worse than anything you will find. Yeah. In in a literary magazine. Yes. And he is right. Yes, he's he totally right, right about on that, that. <laughs> He's totally yeah.
0: right about that. But that's where I think, like, there are again, there are like, there are certain virtues that it will that it, that it that it will be able to master, and I think there are people for whom. Those are the chief virtues of poetry, and I think, you know, even like the you the note I wrote in the margin um, toward the end of your article when I was reading -reading rereading this morning, was uh, the Library of Babel. You know that another Borges story, but you know the Library of Babel at this point both like both metaphorically and literally exists online. Somebody's you know wrote a program to create it. Where basically it is every possible configuration of letters on a page, Mm -hmm. and of course. Only a, only a human intelligence will be able to identify which of those combinations would be appealing to a human. And so in that sense, I think insofar as experimental or experiment is a is a branch of poetic writing, that's some you know po- computers will be able to out generate out randomly generate us. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that even with the existing programs, uh, it takes a human to say, oh, that was a really good one. Right, like this page. Eh, this didn't work so well, but like, but this was a really great, you know, the, and that that part of writing poetry, which is coming up with weird shit and then plucking out the better examples of it, that's something you know, computers don't seem able to pluck the good examples yet.
1: Well, no, because, but that I mean, generation they, yeah.
0: of that generation of random, weird, exciting, inventive, new language, that's something that I think is that we're gonna have less and less of a monopoly on.
1: I, I mean, don't think I don't yeah. think
0: it will but but again I think like the it's it's a question of like if accuracy is a virtue you prize I don't see you know that that's what you know you make a big point that that that's not where you see robots coming close and you know not a virtue I I named my list was poignancy and you know yeah. to some extent yeah. that is an effect of a, a kind of existential accuracy right. as you said that, um, how do you confer the knowledge of mortality like if, if it, it would take a computer not only understanding the concept of death, but being aware that it will die.
1: Right. In order right. for
0: it to touch on what poems touch on when we get that chill
1: from them. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the problem isn't that AI lacks the brains to write poetry well. Yeah. The problem is also that it lacks the brains to care. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like, it's not, it's not simply that these machines don't grasp nuance and they don't have any shared cultural experiences. That is a problem. But it, it, the problem, as one programmer put it, is that the algorithms don't give a damn. Yeah. They, will, they will look for tumors with the same speed as that they will write you like a Shakespearean sonnet and do both of those with the same sort of obliviousness. But w- what established poetry is as like that coveted standard in the first place, the standard that all these AI engineers and these AI shops are, are striving for, the, the thing that the reason that they, they keep... Offering up poetry as that boast is the very thing they will never get. I mean, this is, this for me is the thing that kills me because the force of, of poetry as something that you hear that, that makes it authoritative and, aud- and, and audible, I guess. Like, you know, the reason Whitson Weddings is such a powerful poem, yeah. the reason like Elizabeth Bishop's One Art is such a powerful poem. I mean, the kinds of calculation that, that went into writing those poems are impossible for algorithms. And part of it has to do with what I think with Dean Young. Said in his book, I mean, the late Ding Young, actually, um, you know, the, in his book, The Art of Recklessness, where he said, Poetry is alive because it knows it is mortal. And and AI has a mind body problem that it has no body. Yeah. Um, so if you have no body, you have no poetry. Because I think poetry requires an embedded consciousness.
0: The, there's the, it's the, um, I think of the, Edna it's a Malay poem, Elegy, where she says, Once the ivory box has broken, uh, I can't remember the fucking line, but she, but the the point is that that the, of all of the of all of the qualities that the beloved possesses, the voice is irreplaceable, and it's it's in that case it's it's because it's married to this physical form. Right. It's not just words you can remember. It's not just an idea. It's not just an association. It has to do with being embodied. I don't, but I don't. I think I think calculation is maybe the wrong word for that, right? Right, right. Because that is, I mean, that is what. I mean, all right, so so in chess, the the virtue that people thought computers would never replicate was intuition. Right. And it, and maybe they haven't, but they can overcome it with brute force calculations. But exactly. The, the yeah. difference is again, I guess that because chess is a is competitive and a zero sum, it it is possible to make it's it's possible for the computer to tell the difference between a good choice and a bad choice. Finally, right. whereas with a with a poem, it's not. What's going on, baby? You want to come quickly? Say hi.
1: This is Ellie. Hi. This is Carmine. I hope you keep this in the podcast.
0: <laughs>
1: hi. Hi. Were you watching something? No. No. Were you playing? No. Were you playing with your sister? No. Were you listening to your father? No. <laughs> what, what do what do we
0: what do we need? What do you need? You need um, to get tucked in? No, I want you to help with brush teeth. Brush teeth. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm gonna quickly. Brush of course, brush teeth. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. Go
1: right, for right. it. I'll be right back. Oh, sorry. No worries. I I do hope you keep some of this. I'm serious. I think it'd be great for yeah. people to know what you go through a little bit. Yeah, uh, yeah. My, I was gonna say all my co-hosts have gotten used to this, <laughs>
0: and Brian's sons have you know occasionally have interjections as well. I I, I, I I wanted to ask like, what do you think? I know like the the deadly part of any any like think piece is is in an attempt to shift from description to prescription. But like you're yeah. you are an editor and a poet, and you've been involved in the poetry world in canada for a long time and from a you know a number of different roles is there a didn't i just tuck you in
1: what <laughs> read her my essay really put her to sleep
0: I, I think if i think when josie finishes brushing her teeth she can read you a story okay all right baby girl all right, I love you. Shut the door, please. She is too cute. Oh man, she knows um, it too. She's you yeah. Know, uh but yeah, like is there if is there, if yeah. like part of so I was thinking of like, you know the um and there's lots of political baggage to this at least over here, this the Sokol experiment um yeah. or or hoax or you know stunt, yeah. whatever you want to call it and then Sokol squared, which is on your and like whatever you want to say about any of the politics or whatever, like the the thesis of those stunts was that was that if you could take a a piece of silliness in in paper form right. and get it published in
1: some in some journal? Oh, okay, but let it, me say. Or, yeah, sorry, great. go ahead. No, quickly. I don't think AI is a stunt, and so. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! yeah. No! 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 no. Yeah, yeah. yeah! Yeah! I think I think the technology is very real, and yeah. um and its achievements just as real. To- no, to- um, yeah. No, yeah,
0: that's certainly that's certainly true. Yeah. In th- in this specific case, I guess like. Whether or not anyone wants to take, like quickly, Alan Sokol used a, basically used a, a, a an AI engine decades ago to right. generate a a piece of, I mean, not not even coherent uh, uh, pseudo academic writing, and then got it published in a respectable academic journal, and then there were a number of academics more recently, who who did a much bigger version of this. And there are plenty of people who've made lots of objections, and I don't want to take all that on. But the theory, at least, of those those hoaxes was that if it were possible to get a piece of self-consciously silly writing published in a serious journal, then you're demonstrating something about the fraudulence of that journal. And insofar as that theory, at least, has some validity to it, if that's a, if that's a meaningful theory or strategy, I would say that we're already there as far as AI and poetry. Like mm-hmm. it would, I don't know if anybody has submitted, I mean, I'm sure at this point somebody submitted AI poetry to magazines yeah. and I don't think based on the quality of most poetry magazines that there would be any meaningful way to tell the difference or, or make a distinction. And And I think like, if that is a way to discredit a, line of publication i think we're already there right is there anything we should setting aside you know like the the possibilities that ai has in its future and what maybe it'll be maybe someone will build a a biological machine that has self-awareness and does eventually decay and has a a realizes that it will decay and at that point all bets are off like if a if if a robot can say memento mori and mean it you know maybe it will write real poetry you know at that point right uh but Setting aside any attempt to predict what's going to happen with AI, like are there any lessons we should try to draw yeah. from from yeah. what this says about us, about our writing?
1: You know, I think so, and I think ultimately what the what writing this essay brought to meant to me was that it it brought our current era, literary era, into sharper focus. And well, on one hand, i i i, I did find i do i did and do find something unsettling about the w- willingness to make, that exists among some poets, to make our, author- our authorship optional, to render ourselves irrelevant, right? And there is, I was a bit surprised, and I guess I'm naive on this front, to find a very rich scholarly tradition devoted to what one academic called the inhuman artifice of computer-generated writing. Did anything goes attitude that that has made all this possible. So here's where I sound like a crank, and sure, sure, sure. and it's nearly a century of experimentation has opened the door for machine poetry, and that that has and so that writing this has helped me understand that the the question isn't whether and I think I asked this in the essay, but the question isn't whether machines can write poetry, it's whether it's how much longer we will care, yeah, um, whether we can. And I, not, I, and I think that day is coming quickly. There's a theory which I th- always thought was interesting. And I always thought there was some sort of connection to what I was doing to, 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 to this subject or to poetry, or the poetry being written by machines. So the theory states that AI can make short work of tasks humans find hard. It can do advanced computation, but it's stumped by the skills that toddlers take for granted, right? right? It can parse oceans of data, but it can't play catch. So hard is easy. Easy is hard for when it comes to algorithms. Yeah, yeah. And, and as, as poets, I feel there's a ver- we can frame our own version of this by saying that poetry is easy for AI, but poems are hard. Yeah. And so, and, but what I mean is that, you know, these algorithms can, are capable of generating endlessly these unexpected outputs out of like linguistic patterns, right? Um, and there is something compelling in, in, in the strangeness of that, of that language. And that's why I meant earlier, I said some of those examples are better than others. Some of them were more compellingly strange than others. Yeah. But those wizardly gifts that project readers into like, you know, the reality of heartbreak, failure, survival that that thing that a poem can do ai can't do that and uh and and there is i think there's a similar sort of argument you can make about poets uh poetry is easy for us poems are hard you know and this is an argument that clive james made a number of times in his his criticism it's easy for for writers to to generate i mean i I think of poets like jory graham i think of poets like um like Charles Wright, I mean, like a lot of their careers, or Ezra Pound, to an extent, a lot of their careers are taken up with these, like, you know, these projects that that generate almost endlessly this this kind yeah. of linguistic sort of like experimentation and play. Very few of their of their are, have actual poems in them. Um, yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. And and that seems like what I what I'm totally confident. GPT three. Okay, hey girls, very quickly, Josie, Ellie, listen, baby, Josie, would you go read Ellie a bed?
1: <laughs> I
0: in. okay Ellie
1: put that's fine put one blanket on there
0: or something can you help her put a little quilt or something on there real quick and then I'm, I'll come I'll come read you uh you read from your book and I'll come tuck you in in a, in a little minute okay Ellie go with Josie please I, okay that's fine bring it in and go ahead and shut the door please what I totally believe GPT three could do is write a sonnet that it could tuck into a book of Shakespeare sonnets right. and would be more or less indistinguishable from the run of sonnets in there what I what I don't think it could do is write a standout is write one that's even even sort of a standout, even like a a mid-range like ooh, that's. Boy, it's not perfect, but it really hits something strong. Like I, I think that's the I think you're exactly right in the, in that distinction between.
1: And I and I like also want to say sorry. Just yeah, something please. that occurred to me, but like, <laughs> sorry, I get worked up about this. What is new has made poetry old again. One irony is that all these cutting edge programs have, in a sense, re-traditionalized poetry. They are reminding us of its bedrock sources. So they 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 are bringing a new urgency to my mind, they're bringing a new urgency. I mean, if you care about this debate, they are bringing a new urgency to the debate over poetry's place in an al- algorithmic world. So, I mean, so the essay was my attempt to rally to defend this art, to press, to define the elements that yeah. set it apart, you know? Um, right. And so these elements are, are you know, are, are not only help poets use language freshly, but they help us see the world freshly, they recreate it and, you know, in these new unprecedented ways. And GPT three, to the extent that I understand what it's doing, and to the extent that I've seen examples from it, cannot do this. And and invariably will not be able to do this. As long as it's not aware of itself as a thing in the world, as long as it, you know, its heart isn't broken, as long as it, it doesn't see its father, its parents die, as long as it doesn't have I mean, as long as it doesn't have any of the experiences. That we have I can't see how we can write poetry I mean there is um oh I can't remember his name now he's it's a uh he's a science fiction writer he he's written oh yeah Ted oh I, I actually I've never pronounced his name Ted Chiang oh Ted Chiang yeah I don't know I just say Chiang yeah. Yeah, yeah okay yeah. so he wrote yeah. he wrote as part of my reading for this essay I read this this short story he wrote called Life Cycle Life Cycle of Software Software Objects and mm-hmm. so he the story is about these like it's a really interesting piece I and mean, his stories are really interesting. He, yeah. It's a it's it's a story about these AI life forms called digians. And so it's short for digital entities. And um and so these entities are bred inside this like virtual platforms and the 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 interesting thing about the story is that these entities possess actual intelligence. Then over time they develop personalities of their own, right? This is how this is the sort of the the thesis of this, of, this, uh, uh, of this short story. So they, they think and they grow. And at one point, one of the characters uh, is talking about sort of the difficulties of rearing her own sort of digital entity. Is, I think his name is, entity's name is Jax. And she realizes that these databases, these sentient databases, are just sort of sum totals of their experiences, just like humans yeah. are. And she says something to the effect that there are no shortcuts. Like if you yeah. want to create common sense, comes from 20 years of being in the world you need 20 years stepping on rakes and stubbing right your t- yeah like, like doing
0: stupid things. yeah
1: you know you have to if you want to create 20 years of being in the world you have to devote 20 years to the task <laughs> Right, you know yeah. and 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 then she has this phrase or, or ted uh, chang has this phrase where he says experience is algorithmically incompressible and so this idea that gpt3 can like shortcut its way to understanding the world just because it can it can calculate millions and billions, or that it can compute millions and billions of calculations a second, yeah. is for me grotesque. It's tech worship, um, and and it completely misunderstands how poetry works, how poets work, how humans work. I think this is ultimately what drove me to write this essay. I guess when I see an essay by Stephen Marsh, and you know, and 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 um, I find his stuff like just really compelling and, and and right now I feel he's he is writing some of the most interesting uh, journalism about you know these these breakthroughs i mean he's one, he's maybe the only person actually tracking this and, and yeah. in real time and, and writing about it and thinking about it, but at the heart of it is is, is his belief that you can create great art through brute force computation and yeah. i'm not there yet i don't see it and i don't believe it the, the most
0: m- moving portion of any of these essays of his that I've read is the one in, it was in The Atlantic recently, The American Walrus, as we call it. Um, right, right. <laughs> uh, where he talks about a program called Project December, mm. which which does something that is like a text version of what uh, appeared in an episode of Black Mirror, I think in the first season yeah. of that, right. where where you, you take basically all of the, all of the digestible data from somebody's life and you create a version of that person who can speak from the grave. And he includes a little bit of dialogue between a programmer and his late fiance and it's, and it's, I, I found it heartbreaking, but it's not because the language is exceptional in any particular way it seems like it's it's a it's about an average level right. generator of like believable human small talk where she like the first thing she says is huh which is like very human incredible but also not that hard to teach a computer to do but what but what's moving about it is that he's there and he knew Jessica and it, right. like he imbues that conversation with his own with all of his own lived experience that that that's they say that it may not be intelligent but it feels like the first machine that has a soul and maybe that's true, but to the extent to which it's true, it's the it's the programmer's soul. It's, his, it's like it's, he he brought it to it. It's, you know? It
1: is it's just a hyper realistic Eliza. It's yeah. it's it's just a better with a, version with with
0: personal history, right? right. With his with right. his you know which, right. uh
1: But to the extent you know. that the, the extent that that Stephen like, like Marsh won't come clean on that is where I is is the extent where I where is where I can't. I can't travel with him on the way on this. There's there's all there's the part of his pieces where he he see he sort of understands the sort of the the consequences and extent of what's happening. Um, he describes the technology. Um, he's clearly sort of jazzed by it. Um, he clearly understands sort of where things are headed. And yet, and 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 that's and I'm there with him. But then there's always a point in the piece where he sort of he he sees. He's taken up by the revolutionary glamour of what he's of what yeah. he's describing, and i I can't travel that way with him i mean I can't travel all that way with him i this and this is like a totally not rational
0: not especially externally valid response, but I find myself inevitably in these essays feeling like a writerly human chauvinism. I don't know if yeah. you experienced this like yeah. that part of me is like come on, Steven, like, you're one of us, like, how can you not, like, on some level, do, do you, you know, do you not feel like a, an urge to reject this, an urge to to say, like, say it ain't so, I mean, I don't know, I mean, again, like, that's not a very good argument, but I, I
1: can't help but feel that in any one of these essays I read. But any, and I think he would probably say that we're just holding on to old ideas, uh, mm-hmm. as Bach has, has said again and again, and that this is the future. I just don't, I just, Ultimately, I don't think AI's difficulty in writing poetry can be fixed with faster systems yeah. to which you can feed more stratospheric amounts of data. Like, I don't think this is, I mean, I, 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 the idea that you can do this, the idea that to the extent that you believe that, the extent that you you, you profoundly misunderstand yeah, what poetry is. There's and, a, um,
0: yeah. I was going to say that the, the, the other parallel that comes to mind, and I know the the conservative catholics who inexplicably listen to this podcast will be, will be shouting at me uh as i say this but but I, there was like an an unorthodox reading of the jesus story that right. i always kind of liked growing up which is which is that part of what god was doing was trying to understand human beings by 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 experiencing life in a limited form, right? By right. by, like right. taking away all of those, that limitlessness that made him so superior in a way that allowed him to understand, that, that in a way there's a certain kind of knowledge that can only be contained within ignorance, within limitation. Right. right. And that that right. may be, maybe that's, you know, maybe that's ultimately our, uh, you know, you say that poetry may be our last best stand against AI and that may be, that and, may that's, rest and that's entirely, on our limitations, you know? but that's
1: entirely motivated. I get it. I, that's entire. That's entirely motivated by species ego, right? Yeah. Like I'm jealously guarding a part of myself that I believe is beyond computation. Yeah. Now, Christian Bach, with would, would, would you know who's you know would say that that would call me out for that, and I think yeah. Stephen Marsh would call me out for that too. But but the one thing I want to say, I think maybe maybe the last thing I want to say on this <laughs> is. Um, and, and my piece isn't good get into this but i thought i began thinking about it after i submitted it is that it's wor- it's it's worth asking the question of who benefits yeah 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 i mean and, and and the thing that that leads me here is just is just the amount of money that's shaping the e- ai field so i mean the this the poetry generation is like a business proposition yeah and so you know they these these uh language engines are are being used to improve search results uh, translation yeah. document su- summarization grammarly which is which which creeps me out right you know um, those, those programs that help you yeah yeah and so like i they're they're designed ultimately to sort of serve the dominant interests right and yeah. so um and so it, it's worth discussing like what is the end point to, for all this language generation like what is the is it is it is it about producing a beautiful sonnet or I mean, or is it about improving customer service inquiries like, you know, yeah. um, and I, I, I tend to think that it's 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 the latter. Like, I tend to think that that what we're admiring here are algorithms that are going to be redeployed in very commercially relevant ways yeah, yeah, um, yeah. to produce a, a copy and search results tailored to specific consumers.
0: No, it reminds me of like the feeling I had when I, the first time I realized what was on the other side of CAPTCHA tests. Do you know those? Right, right. Yeah. Which is
1: like, we are building
0: a database right. for for like Teslas or like to like, this is what a bridge looks like. This yeah. is what a stop sign is. Yeah. I, I certainly can't imagine that even if, as you say, like every new language generation machine puts out poetry as a point of pride or as a kind of a calling card, clearly that can't be the end because Because it's 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 not been the end for any business in any recent memory for any reason.
1: No, and then but then like what's the what is the extension of that that you? I'm perfectly ready to believe that at some point, GPT three like two hundred will become like the major poet of like the twenty second century, right? Yeah, like you know this entity able to mass produce an endless supply of like images, ideas, metaphors. Maybe scarcity, it won't understand it, right? Right, Uh, Mr. Mega poet won't experience any fallow periods. It's never going to fall yeah. into silence. Don't like a sonnet? It can bang at another and another right, yeah. and another, you know? It's never um, going to
0: write Mr. Flood's party of it. No, I mean, wave
1: after wave of heroic couplets, epic yeah, poems, yeah, yeah. sonnets. I mean, like, you know, um, and and maybe this is what we're headed for, you know? yeah. But people still watch Magnus Carlsen, you know? They do. They he's, do. <laughs> way, he's
0: so much worse than yeah. AlphaZero, but he's right. so much more interesting. <laughs> yeah. I don't see... AI replacement on the of the virtues that matter to me most in poems.
1: Like, I don't I don't see. Yeah, I don't think. And and, and I think Bach's vision and he's written about this is that poets are going to be celebrated one day for the computer programs that write their poems rather than the poems themselves. And so they'll be known as writers of code, he puts it, not writers of words. And so, and so, I have this vision of like poets as like the small sect that do it the old way, right? Um, but isn't that know, already it? Like, aren't we all? Re- I mean, that's the yes, thing like... This is exactly that's my point. That that when that we are already there in a way, and 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 this this is what my essay, you know, in its humble way, like, brought me to realize that that yeah. that that future is already here. It feels um, yeah.
0: It's, it feels like if if. You know, like you know, that character in The Sopranos, the guy who played the T one like, he had a, owned a sports shop, and he he got in hock to to Tony, and so the the mob kind of took his business and right, blew it, right, blew right, it right. out. And yeah. I feel like that's happening. It's like, oh, it's <laughs> yeah. a nice poetry business you have.
1: It's,
0: <laughs> like, I like, don't you realize? Like, we have no credit, we have no income, we have like, there's nothing to blow out here. Like, yeah. There's nothing to yeah. take to yeah. take advantage of. that was this week's show. You can find Carmine uh, on Twitter at C Starnino. Oh no, this thing says dirty words. That makes me think his most recent book is actually something called dirty words. I'll look it up. Go to the show notes. I'll have links to his books or at least so he's got so many fucking books. I'll have links to some of his books and a bunch of his other stuff. Go look Carmen up. He's super smart and funny and he's a very good writer. And if you ever have the chance to be edited by him, I highly, highly recommend it. Uh, you can find me as always, uh, not on fucking Twitter, but on, <laughs> but you can email me at sleerickets at gmail.com. Uh, and with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then.